Episode 95, International Cooperation in Space. One of the things that struck me in the course of reading other writers' histories of the space programs and of different countries and different groups of countries is that cooperation between those countries and others, whether they were China, Russia, the United States or whatever, was generally chapter 11 or chapter 15. It was tucked in as an afterthought to the main text. And it occurred to me, would it be interesting to look at cooperation between different countries uh, in the space arena on its own merits uh, and to see how did that develop? How did it work? Who started it? Which countries were more interested in doing it than others? What were the outcomes? What were the scientific outcomes, the industrial outcomes? Why did they do it? Were the reasons purely industrial? Were they purely scientific? Um, were they for political reasons as well? Who were the key personalities in cooperation? Because in all of this, the, the human chemistry is going to be very important. So my intention was to devote a book entirely to the issue of cooperation in its own right. Hello and welcome to AstroTalk UK. ATUK is a not-for-profit podcast produced by me, Gurbir Singh, amateur astronomer and writer based in the UK. I produce this podcast for my own education and share it as a free educational resource with anyone who has an interest. ATUK has no subscribers, ads, and you do not need to log in. For more information, please see the About page at www.astrotalkuk.org. The Cold War was primarily the story of USSR and USA and their respective allies. Author Brian Harvey, in his new book, European-Russian Space Cooperation, from de Gaulle to ExoMars, has documented in meticulous detail the strategic relationship between France and the USSR that modulated the larger USSR-USA Cold War relationship that dominated geopolitics between the end of World War II and the demise of the USSR in 1991. In this interview, I discuss with Brian the challenges of researching multiple written and spoken languages, the pros and cons of cooperation, why it was France and not another European country that took the lead role in European USSR-Russia cooperation, hurdles of export controls, sanctions, conflicts of interest and varying cultural traditions of working on joint space missions. A few of the high-profile successes such as Planetary Exploration, Soyuz Kourou and ExoMars. A video recording of this interview is also available on YouTube. European-Russian space cooperation, the story of uh, space collaboration from De Gaulle to ExoMars. Uh, this is author Brian Harvey's umpteenth oh, book, uh, 400 pages of the uh, story of essentially nation-building after the devastations of the World War, not just in Europe, but globally. And the story in the book is not just about space, although that is, of course, the 
front and center topic. It's also about people and processes and geopolitics, which is the area that I found particularly interesting. I also found interesting uh, the little tidbits you found in doing your research, Brian, that, for example, there was a launch in one of the bio experiments. There was a, a lizard to be launched, and in the end, late launch failure of battery meant that the mission had to launch with a dead lizard, didn't have time to change the payload. And there's another instance where you found this really fascinating problem, which required nothing less than a spacewalk at Mir when the command module was going to be docked with Mir, and it couldn't because there was a plastic bag in the docking mechanism, which had to be removed first. So we're going to talk about things like that, many other topics. Let me start off with asking you, Brian, what motivated you to write this book and what was it that you were trying to solve? What is the new central contribution, do you think, of this new book? One of the things that struck me in the course of reading other writers' histories of the space programs and of different countries and different groups of countries is that cooperation between those countries and others, whether they were China, Russia, the United States or whatever, was generally chapter 11 or chapter 15. It was tucked in as an afterthought to the main text. So cooperation with other countries was generally considered a fairly low priority um, and something that was added to the history at a very late stage. Um, And it occurred to me, would it be interesting to look at cooperation between different countries uh, in the space arena on its own merits? Uh, and to see how did that develop, how did it work, who started it, who may have finished it at particular points in time, which countries were more interested in doing it than others, what were the outcomes, what were the scientific outcomes, the industrial outcomes, why did they do it, were the reasons purely industrial, were they purely scientific, Um, were they for political reasons as well, who were the key personalities in cooperation, because in all of this, the the human chemistry is going to be very important. So my intention was to um, devote a book entirely to the issue of cooperation in its own right, and to look at the the history, origins, development, permutations, some of the what-ifs, some of the opportunities missed, some of the things that didn't happen, some of the things that could happen, and what were all the elements that went into the mix that created what you could call good or what you might call not so good outcomes to that cooperation. So it was it is an attempt to get an all-round review of the process and its outcomes. What um, researching across international boundaries with different languages, different cultures of the scientists and engineers and indeed the diplomats, um, it must have been a tough process um first of all share with us and do do you you must have come across many documents in french german and and russian uh how would you characterize your skills in these languages and um what kind of resources did you use in producing the book um there are a couple of things here i think first of all some of the work of cooperation has been quite well documented in some areas um france spectacularly well there are books on french russian cooperation uh, they're in french obviously uh, <clears throat> on the 
Soviet Russian side, um, uh, there was a time when, it, this is way back in the Soviet period, when um, many booklets and short publications were issued by the Soviet Union on its cooperative endeavours with other countries, particularly Europe. Uh, and they were informative, although when I say they were lacking in detail, they weren't necessarily trying to achieve de detail. Uh, if one looks at individual countries, there was comparatively little uh, on the German side. I'm still quite surprised that if you look at uh, German language histories uh, of cooperation, it's, it's not a priority topic at all. Um, so that um, if, if one follows the paper trail, one gets a strong picture of the French uh, Soviet Union Russia cooperation side but much less, the paper trail tells you much less about the other countries. Um, however, one must always uh, go on the adage that um, uh, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Uh, so one must look very carefully and, for example, trawl through scientific papers uh, of projects where you either know or suspect that there was Russian-European cooperation and look for names of scientists who might have been involved or whatever. So the paper trail will tell you so much, but it's important not to be guided purely by the paper trail. Um, one of the things I did, and colleagues helped me in this, uh, was to get interviews with some of the personalities, um, most, most so at the European end, uh, who had been uh, involved uh, in the cooperation process. And quite a number of whose um, memoirs, records had not been written up. Um, so it was possible to get some interviews with some of the uh, key personalities who were and indeed still are uh, involved in, in cooperation. The European Space Agency was very helpful, for example. Um, I, I do know that on the Soviet-Russian side, um, people were helpful there. Um, on the other hand, my one of my, my self-criticisms about the book is that I have not been able to get as much material as I would like on the Russian perspective on cooperation with Europe. Uh, I do have some views, mainly from France, in fact, of what they thought the Russian perceptions were, but that's not quite the same thing as testing it out. And a further complication was that some of my interview program was curtailed because of the virus, um, which meant that unfortunately some intended interviews uh, did not happen. But I hope to come back to some of those issues at some stage in the future. So to answer your question, I think you're looking at a mixture of the, the paper record, uh, the oral record, and trying to search very carefully for what you might still be missing. And I'm sure some things are still missing, and I'm sure it's a story to which one can add over the years. How, fami how familiar are you with, uh, how fluent are you in German, French or Russian? Oh, um, I have um, some, some knowledge of um, French. I can read French, uh, I hope reasonably okay. Uh, German, much less so. Russian, I have a bit of knowledge, but I can uh, normally find people who can help me with translation. I can get the sense of uh, what some of the writing is about. So where um, I'm, I'm not able to manage it directly myself, I'm able to get uh, work translated. So I'm reasonably happy I've been able to get a reasonable bit of sense of it. And I know this is a rather uh, lazy answer, um, but I'm conscious that the 
international community uses English much, much more uh, than that had to be the case. So um, as a, a native English speaker, as it were, one has an unnatural and welcome nonetheless advantage in all of this. Yeah. Uh, and, but uh, that really what I was getting at. There are not many people who have the combination of the skill set um, which you possess, which really placed you uh, at uh, the, the to be the most appropriate person to write this kind of book, and not many people will take that box. Let me ask you uh, another question before we delve into some of the detail uh, that you uh, highlight in the book. But first, um, if we stand back and think about the uh, the um, the value of cooperation, now some projects uh, are only possible because they're collaborative and involve many partners, but some because of the collaborative nature and the um, multitude of problems that arise from them, um, conflicts of interest or um, competing national or political um, uh, interests as well, they can, collaboration can undermine the success of a project. Were you able to, as a result of writing the book, highlight and pick up any um, common pitfalls that should be avoided or attributes that uh, would help project to succeed? I think if you're looking at what makes cooperation work uh, and work well, I think the French actually got it right from the very, very start um, because they signed a very formal agreement in 1966. Um, so you had a legal basis for the cooperation. You had structures were put in place. Um, there were various layers of structures and consultation. Um, perhaps the most important, though, was that there were annual reunions alternating between the Soviet Union and France of the scientists involved. And they would meet for 10 days together, uh, normally in the summer or the autumn. Um, so you had 50, maybe 100 in each other's companies for quite a prolonged and intense period uh, in which they were, because they didn't have the internet early on, cut off from the rest of the world. So they only had themselves to talk to for that amount of time. And during those meetings, they reviewed what they had been doing in the past. They looked at their current projects and they would then come at the end to a formal agreement as to what we will do for the next year, two years, three years. So it meant that the relationship had a great degree of clarity. Um, and also, this legal agreement was built into the governmental structures of both countries. So it had the support at the highest possible uh, political level, right up to the Kremlin and right up to the Elysee Paris, Paris, Palace, although obviously political leaders did come and go, but it was a constant really in, 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 in this entire process. So I, I think the combination of the formal agreement, the informal working relationships, the trust, and that's an important word, that built up mm -hmm. between the scientists and the engineers um, and the clarity all around that were the things that made the French-Russian uh, project work well and that I imagine our model for how it should be general in general terms. If I just go a little deeper into this before we move on to other topics, um, the agreement you refer to was the one that was signed by de Gaulle in uh, on June uh, 30th of June 1966, and uh, two specific aspects. One 
there was, in addition to the uh, collaborative um, agreement in space, there was actually another secondary agreement signed at the same time, which included a deeper scientific, technical and economic cooperation as well. So A, how important was that? The fact that it was a much broader agreement and also De Gaulle had a very long history and an association with, with Russia. And he was a person essentially ostensibly from the West uh, who really opened up the uh, the gates and kept the gates open, the communication between the USSR and, uh, and the West open. And he went to Moscow in 1966. What role do you think his, De Gaulle's personal connections, historic connections with Russia played um, in A, securing this broader deal and also then ensuring its success? De Gaulle was absolutely critical to this um, story. He is the most important personality of this story, even though it's early on, for several reasons. First of all, he had personal experience of Russia and the Soviet Union. He'd been um, in Germany as a prisoner in the First World War with Russian prisoners. In the Second World War, he traveled uh, to Russia as part of his leadership of the Free French Movement. And there were French fighters in the Red Air Force, the Neiman Squadron, and so on. So that was a, a World War II alliance. So although de Gaulle was politically very conservative, uh, he was no um, sort of pretend communist, quite the opposite. Um, he nevertheless felt an association and affinity uh, with uh, Russia, the Soviet Union, uh, and he, he was prepared to do business with them when other Western leaders weren't. But the second thing here is probably more important, which was post-war Europe. Um, it had always been assumed that Britain would be the leader of post-war Europe, but the politics of Britain in the 50s and 60s turned out otherwise. Um, France was one of the founders, uh, if not the founder, of what was then called the European e Economic Communities, what we now know as the European Union. Um, and it, it was very much a French project. The British were invited to participate, but chose not to. Um, in the early 1960s, when Britain applied to join the European Union, de Gaulle said Britain does not have a European vocation um, and would make this project very difficult. And in the light of developments in recent years, you could say that he had astonishing foresight uh, about that. <laughs> so, in effect, de Gaulle said that France shall lead Europe. If you look at the construction of the European institutions, they're French, it's French administrative system. Um, the main civil servants who worked there were French from the very beginning. But also de Gaulle had a bigger vision of not only of France leading Europe, but of Europe being independent of um, the American-European axis, uh, of having equidistance uh, between the West and the East. Uh, and it wasn't just in the space area that this cooperation was built up. You rightly point out that it wasn't just cooperations in space. It was cooperation all over the place. Uh, I was astonished, in fact, to read the depth and breadth of that cooperation. 
there are very few institutes, research centers, uh, and so on in France that do not have connections uh, with uh, the old Soviet Union and with Russia uh, today. And even in the current days, you have, in the current times, you have days of Europe, uh, French Europe, sorry, excuse me, French Russia cooperation. Um, there are all kinds of events in the field of culture, education, scientific research, economic development, and so on. So it's seen as a very, very broad range of cooperation that, that is matched by no other country in Europe. So uh, the story here has everything to do with de Gaulle, his personality, his history, his politics, his vision, his ideas. And you can see that the thread of Gaullism, as it were, running through mm -hmm. the whole story right to the very present day. Hmm. And, and it, it, you, you're quite right, he's very prescient when it comes to um, Britain and how it sees its place in, in, Europe, in Europe. But also, I think you, you highlight, you indicated there, um, de Gaulle wanted to keep his distance away from, uh, distance from, the, from America. Yes. And because Britain didn't, it did the, the inverse, it meant that he, as long uh, uh, France, would have a, a much stronger relationship with the then USSR than Britain ever could. Why did France not have an equivalent relationship with China as it had with Russia? France was one of the first countries to recognize the government of the People's Republic. Um, so, and again, it was acting quite independent-mindedly in doing so. The relationship did not build up um, in the same way as it did with the Soviet Union. The reasons for that are, are not entirely clear. Um, certainly the Chinese space program in its early days was quite limited and quite small. We now see China as the third great space superpower, um, but certainly in the, its first rocket launch was not until, satellite launch was not till 1970, and its launches were one or two a year, sometimes none a year, throughout the 70s and 80s. So it was not a significant uh, play and I don't think anyone then imagined that the Chinese space program would become as big and as important as it is as it has become since then. Um, mm. uh, when the Chinese program did begin to expand, uh, China tended to deal more directly with Europe and the European Space Agency as a whole. And the first significant collaborative project was Double Star or Tanse in the late 1990s. Uh, and although French scientists were very much involved with that, um, there appeared to be a preference on China's part to deal with the whole of the European Space Agency. But since then, there have been two very specific um, cooperation projects uh, with uh, between France and China, the CFOS mission and the SVOM mission, um, the first of which is already underway. Um, so that has developed, but not, not to the same extent. It's quite possible that uh, France has become so extended in its space work that there is not sufficient room uh, for cooperation with China. But it's a question that certainly I would be interested to pursue. Hmm. And, and it's um, uh, quite interesting. I think the uh, the fact that, as you are, uh, illustrated earlier, the deep connections that de Gaulle had with Russia were mirrored when it came to China. And also, I suspect that um, um, there were many in Russia who would more readily likely to be able to speak French than speak Chinese. And therefore that language barrier was a bit yes. easier when it came to uh, uh, cooperating with 
Russia rather than China. If I just change topic a little bit now, um, one uh, eye-catching statement in your book was that uh, uh, the Americans made it clear as early as 1963 that Europe should not enter the communication launch market. Now, this is a reference to Ariane, as it was just uh, it's, it's, it's a Europe, Europe developing its own launch capabilities, which at that time was just Russia and the USSR and America. So this rather harsh, hard commercial um, stance that uh, America has had right at the beginning, you know, it is a built on a capitalist uh, principles and um, it's these days, especially now, um, there's a, a lot of money in space. America chose really very early on that it's got its foot in the space market and it wouldn't let anybody else in that space market. Can you give us some examples of how America in particular protected uh, the commercial aspects? And perhaps this is why, one of the motivations why Europe wanted its own independent launch capability eventually. Yes, first of all, um, in the period of the presidency of General Eisenhower, um, he announced a program of cooperation with other countries, specifically aiming, I think, at Western Europe. And the Americans made the offer to launch satellites from countries in Western Europe. Indeed, the Americans launched a French satellite, FR-1, at an early stage, the British aerial satellites, Italian satellites. And the Americans were generous um, in their preparedness to work with other countries, launch satellites for them, and so on. There was, one could argue, an ulterior political purpose in doing so in getting these countries on side. But nevertheless, the record shows that, that this was done. Uh, American attitudes were somewhat different when it came to commercial issues. Um, the uh, first significant use of communication satellites was contemporaneously the Olympics. Uh, in 1964, which I think were in Tokyo then, uh, when the American Syncom satellite relayed the Olympics around the world. Uh, the early bird satellite, the first fully 24-hour service satellite, followed uh, the following year. Um, and I think at a fairly early stage, the Americans realized that uh, this was potentially a very big money spinner. Um, and when Europe said, well, we plan to develop our communication satellites and approach the Americans about launching them, uh, the Americans said, well, why should we launch satellites for you, Europe, when you're going to be competing with us for television time and television transmission time worldwide? And the test case for this was Symphonie. Symphonie was a German um, uh, French uh, satellite to build up communications relay satellites for Europe. And there was quite a lengthy standoff uh, between France and Germany on the one hand and the United States on the other. Uh, the upshot of which was the Americans did agree to launch Symphony, but on condition that it was not used commercially. Now, it should be said that American satellite makers um, and particularly American rocket makers did have a certain say in this because they wanted to keep the world telecommunications market to themselves and didn't want other extraterritorial competitors in this. But the upshot of Symphony was a absolute French determination that we are never, ever going to be left in the situation again when we cannot get our own payloads into orbit. 
So the Ariane project uh, is directly attributable to the symphony experience. So the Europeans have the Americans to thank for the invention of Ariane uh, way back in the, in the 1970s, because that did enable Europe to have independent access to space. And Ariane, at a fairly early stage, began to launch communication satellites. It was one of the main things that the Ariane rocket did in its early days, and arguably still does. The most recent Ariane launch was of two communication satellites, the Ariane five uh, a week ago um, so that here obviously the politics of cooperation or non-cooperation uh, comes in a lot which is why the French um, by working with both sides both the American side and the Soviet Russian side um, meant that uh, they were able to, I wouldn't say play one side against the other that's probably not the right way to look at it um, but it meant that they were they maximized there are potential opportunities. And that, I think, is also uh, the same motivation um, for India and China developing their own independent launch systems and communication, navigation, and weather satellites as well. Um, talking of, um, uh, I suppose, protectionism <laughs> from, from those early days, um, I, can you tell us about uh, the Coordinating Committee for Multilateral Export Controls. And uh, the way I uh, came across, the way I understand that is, I think of that as something that uh, uh, was uh, uh, introduced in, in Europe, um, really to implement the sort of American ITAR regime, uh, which usually operates only in, in, in America and by uh, American assets. But in the heart of Europe. So can you just, just give us an overview of what uh, Coordinating Committee for Multilateral Export Controls or COCOM okay. was or is? Here, here is where the book enters controversial political fields. Um, because Most interesting. It, it is very difficult to write a book on cooperation without looking at what are some of the factors that inhibited cooperation. And most of the cooperation in the early days was in the scientific field. Um, and although there were controls about the ways in which scientific cooperation could take place, this was not true of industrial cooperation. Um, and in particular, um, the Western countries had a great fear that somehow they might be assisting the Soviet Union or indeed China, because a similar regime applied there by enabling it to build up its industrial potential, technical potential, some of which could be used for military purposes. Um, so for that purpose, COCOM was invented. Now, COCOM is considered the territory of intelligence nerds. Uh, it had a very, very low profile. Indeed, I think that's the way that governments wanted it. COCOM does not exist in any uh, treaties or in any formal agreements. And indeed, if you were a member of the British Parliament and tried to uh, raise the matter, you would get a ministerial reaction of, what is this? We don't know anything about COCOM. Um, it's uh, not something we are formally part of at all. Um, so it was an informal agreement. It, it took the form of a weekly meeting of all the participant member states um, at a 
post box address in Paris, which in practice was the annex to the American embassy. Um, there are no minutes, there are no records, but it took for 20, 30 years absolutely crucial decisions as to what could be exported to the Soviet Union or not, or China in that case as well. There was a similar system in place there. Um, and at one level, it, it looks sensible. Why, if you're in a Cold War, should you either inadvertently or not so inadvertently help the other side? The problem was that although it was designed to stop the transfer of dual-use technology, and dual-use is one of the, the big words we come across here, uh, how do you mm -hmm. define dual-use? Um, many people have diesel engines for their cars, although from what we're reading now, we won't be able to do that much longer. <laughs> but diesel cars can be used in tanks. Uh, does that mean that all diesel engines are potential military weapons, and so on and so forth? Um, mm. Even, for example, and this was a case with Britain and China, the avionics on the old uh, Viscount aircraft uh, were considered to be um, unsaleable to China because they might use air navigation devices for military purposes, and so on and so mm. forth. So COCOM sat every week and decided what should or should not or could be exempted from trade with Russia or China. And in effect, that prevented pretty well any industrial cooperation in the space field uh, right up until the mm -hmm. 1990s. Just help me with this. Um, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't quite understand, or I'm not quite sure if I understood it correctly. Given that uh, it was based in, uh, associated with the American embassy in France, is COCOM something that the French government supported? It's actually a much more a complicated process than that. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and right. in effect, it, it, it spent its time dealing with exemptions. Um, because right. if, you were, if you wanted to, for example, send a satellite or a satellite part or send anything mm -hmm. to do with the space industry or any other industry for that matter to the Soviet Union, it counted as an export. You had to get domestic export approval um, mm -hmm. And the cases that were considered contentious in domestic um, export control went to COCOM. Uh, and mm -hmm. at that stage, pretty well any other country could intervene and said, no, um, we don't want you sending a company in, say, Maryland, sending a particular product to the Soviet Union. Or the Americans could say, we don't want a British company in Buckinghamshire sending a particular component to the Soviet Union. And in effect, it took the objection of only one country to stop um, the export control. So in effect, it was applying each country's domestic export controls internationally at the same time and giving every other country say in that. The problem was there were always countries and companies in each country looking for exemptions. And mm. it has been alleged, I don't know whether this is the case or not, that it was the Americans who sought the most exemptions. Um, and <laughs> it was the Americans who also stopped yeah. the most exemptions on the other side. We don't know that for sure, but that is the folklore uh, of, uh, of COCOM. Well, I think I'll go further. I, th I think we, we can be sure, and, and it's less likely to be um, folklore because of the way America operates. You've seen in the recent, the former uh, Trump administration in America, the trade wars and how Hawaii, for example, 
and ZTE, the Chinese companies were prohibited, and indeed here in this country too. Uh, and likewise, um, the um, big players like Google and Amazon, they now become um, instruments of uh, uh, diplomatic uh, exchanges when it comes to uh, contentious issues of politics. Let me move on to um, Karoo. Um, so in uh, Russia, there are four uh, launch sites, pre predominantly across Russia, uh, used to launch um, spacecraft into uh, Earth orbit and beyond. But also now Russia has a, a launch capability for the Soyuz in the French Guiana in Karoo. Just summarize how that came about, and, and particularly if you can address, why would Europe where have, when it launches Ariane from, have its essentially competitor, Soyuz, right next door? Why would that be in Europe's interest? The answer is that the Soyuz rocket in itself was not a competitor. Um, in the 1990s, several things changed quite a bit in Europe. Uh, Europe had specialised with Ariane, the Ariane 1, 2, 3, 4, and more particularly the 5, with launching quite large communication satellites into orbit um, and into 24-hour orbit in particular, because they were the, um, the, the, the payloads that generated the most income and revenue. Um, the um, Soyuz was much further down the weightlifting capability. Um, it could lift something like um, four to eight tons into low Earth orbit, but its capacity to 24-hour orbit was quite limited. So Soyuz fitted the requirement for a medium lift rocket for Europe, which okay. Europe didn't have unless it wanted to launch Ariane's with um, uh, much less payload than it really could, which was uneconomical in its own way. So when Europe, Europe's problem was that it could afford really only one launcher at a time, which was Ariane. I know Vega came later, um, but it certainly couldn't afford three at one time. Whereas Russia, one of the great advantages the Soviet Union and Russia always offered was that it was and is a full spectrum space agency. It does everything. It does small rockets, large rockets, medium rockets. It has the full range of ground infrastructure. It does Earth orbit, the solar system, manned flight, unmanned flight, and so on and so forth. And this was the great advantage that the Soviet Union and then Russia offered to Europe. So the Kourou project, which I think has been underestimated because when it was being done, it was the biggest industrial construction project in the whole world uh, when, it, when it took place. Um, mm -hmm. But it was an unusual combination of factors. After 1989-1991, that kind of industrial cooperation that had not been possible before became possible. And because France had such a long history of working with Russia, the doors were opened into the Russian rocket factory, particularly Samara, uh, where the Soyuz rocket was made. Um, the Europeans could offer, and again, this is part of the cooperative picture, that some some countries can offer unique things that other countries can't. Russia does not have an equatorial launch base. It never will. Uh, it's all <laughs> north of 50 degrees. <clears throat> Europe did have the base in Guyana. So the strengths on one side, the weaknesses on the other. So Soyuz neatly fitted into the medium lift capacity requirement for Europe. Europe subsequently built um, the Vega launcher, 
though it has a Ukrainian-Soviet period upper stage, so that connection has not been totally lost there either. Um, uh, and that that has been that has been the case ever since. So it's been a a combination of of opportunity, chance, uh, and economics. And I think you know it's a remarkable um, facility. And and would you say is it fair to say that it would not um, have come about come about in the absence of that very special, unique relationship that the Gaulle got going back in the middle, mid-60s. Doing Soyuz Akuru, as the French call it, the Soyuz project in, in the jungle, was a very required a very intense level of cooperation. It required quite a level of trust um, between the two sides. Um, it meant that France was dealing with companies with which it had not had so much of a relationship before, but it was dealing with those companies on a rocket launcher basis, which which was quite new, I think. Um, so that it was it was quite quite a significant significant uh, step forward at the time. It really was. Now, uh, the book covers, uh, as you say, scientific, industrial, human spaceflight and, and ExoMar, uh, uh, ExoMars, collaboration over those areas. There's many aspects that we don't have time to dig into today. But one thing that I did pick up, which has particularly interested me, is I remember reading about um, Jacques Bermond's um, pet projects of trying to investigate the atmosphere of Venus through balloons. And I actually had forgotten. I thought he tried and su not succeeded. But he did succeed in 1985 with uh, Vega, uh, yeah, Vega spacecraft. And there were two instances, two different spacecraft, uh, where for several hours, balloons drifted in the atmosphere of Venus and they got data back from that. And uh, yeah, I just completely forgotten about that. Are you aware of any projects um, of using balloons to investigate the atmospheres of Mars or Venus in the in the future? Did you, did you research up anything along those lines? Uh, none come immediately to mind, um, but I think the interesting aspect of this is that, again, this goes back to France because uh, the French have used balloons as one of their main instruments in meteorology going way back. Balloons are probably one of the most important aspects of weather forecasting and scientific research into the atmosphere um, that is used by that is used by France. I think other countries may regard this as a bit low tech, uh, but there is nothing low tech about the French approach to ballooning. And the French made quite a number of attempts to get their balloons to Venus. Uh, this is a, a long and protracted tale, uh, which had ended up with Russian balloons going to Venus instead. And they're the only balloons that have flown there or around any other planet. There were plans for balloons to uh, fly to uh, Mars as well. They didn't come to fruition either. Um, but I would imagine there still is potential uh, to use balloons uh, over Venus and possibly in some of the other moons of the planets of the solar system, uh, simply because it is the oldest form of aerial flight um, doesn't mean that it could not be very successfully adapted today. And France is probably the country that has the most experience and knowledge of how to do this. And one of the, the great personality of ballooning in France was Jacques Blamont. Um, and indeed, he was one of the big personalities of French-Russian cooperation across many, many different fields and drove that cooperation for many years. 
And, you know, I, maybe I'm joining dots that shouldn't be uh, joined, but I think there is this you just highlighted. Um, during my research in uh, the uh, book about the Indian Space Programme, I remember Homi Baba and Professor URL uh, using balloons, and they also mentioned the cooperation um, with Jacques Beaumont, who, as, you, as your book shows, was um, awarded a prize by the Indian government just uh, uh, just a few years, just a year or two before he passed away, and uh, so this um, this work, and also uh, Robert Milliken from America, who also did early work in balloons, yep. and that I think is the the genesis of the one of the now um, most um, uh, useful facilities in high altitude balloon research in India in Hyderabad. They make some of the world leading t- uh, balloons for that kind of research. That probably started with people like Blamont and uh, Millikan, I suspect. So thank, thanks for sharing that. Um, <clears throat> you describe uh, ExoMars as a culmination of the story of the Russian-European cooperation, uh, not just because it's the most recent project, and of course it's still under, 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 undergoing, uh, but because it's a um, space science project with the highest level of joint planning uh, and integration, and I should imagine a lot of uh, uh, cost as well. Um, one of the interesting nuggets that came across, I hadn't appreciated until I read your book, was the um, critical role of the 2011 failed Phobos Grunt pro- project to Mars. Can you just tell us what role that Phobos Grunt failed project had in um, accelerating or enabling? I think the failure of Phobos Grunt, which was a terrible disappointment to the Russians after their equally terrible disappointment of Mars 8 in 1996, made that the Russians were desperate to get back to Mars. Um, Their own um, financial resources were quite limited at the time. Um, And there was a real problem, I think, in this in the space community in Russia and persuading the government to fund yet another Mars mission that, well, it might go wrong again. Uh, however, uh, if you do it internationally, uh, suddenly your costs become a lot, a lot less uh, because other countries are paying for some of the work that has to be done in a joint undertaking. Um, so when the Americans pulled out of a planned European-American uh, Mars mission. Uh, the Russians were on the plane uh, to uh, uh, to Paris within hours um, to try set up uh, a joint mission to uh, to fly with uh, to fly to fly with uh, uh, between the, between Europe and and Russia, um, and that was a point at which Europe was rescued um, from having seen its project abandoned, and also um, the Russians were had an opportunity to get back to Mars. I think one of the big problems in the cutbacks that greatly affected the uh, Russian space program, which began in the Soviet period, but intensified in the 1990s, was that some parts of the program suffered more than others and science suffered most. Um, And if you were a Russian scientist, your opportunity to fly instruments uh, to spacecraft around the Earth or further afield uh, diminished all the time. And if you are a scientist, the one thing you want and need more than anything else is access to your own data 
through your own instruments. Uh, so ExoMars provided an opportunity um, whereby the Russians could get access to original scientific data directly themselves. But you're quite right, it was, it was and remains the most integrated uh, of all the uh, projects uh, between uh, Russia and Europe at the present time, um, in the sense that the whole thing is planned uh, in some detail, that um, the spacecraft physically have to be uh, integrated together. The European rover, the Rosalind Franklin, has to be um, integrated with the Kazachok lander. If you look at the Trace Gas Orbiter, which has been successfully orbiting Mars for many years, that's a really practical example of the best of cooperation at work because the scientific papers are rising. If you look at the names on the scientific papers, they're a mixture of Russian names and European names. So the science is being analysed together, um, presented to the world together uh, by this suite of instruments that combines both Russian and European uh, instrumentation. So it's it's a win-win from both sides that arose out of a very specific opportunity. I mean, it's, uh, because of uh, the um, uh, insurance uh, payoff uh, resulting from the failure of Orbis Grant, that the uh, Russians felt that they had the money to support this. Is it common for most governments, not just Russia, but around the world these days, to insure their space launches? Yes, they, they try to get insurance for their rockets if they possibly can. I know that it was very interesting that um, a week before the uh, launch of Nauka, the scientific uh, module to uh, the International Space Station, um, somebody put out the information um, that Nauka was insured. Uh, and this meant that the insurers were prepared to insure the proton rocket um, to uh, get it into orbit because um, the ride to orbit is the most uh, dangerous and hair-raising part of any mission, at least so we thought because the proton performed absolutely perfectly and the trouble started once Nauka got into orbit. But that's uh, that's the exception, I think, that proves the rule. So insurance can play an important role in how these things are done or not. So let me just uh, continue to talk about Nauka. Uh, you're quite right about uh, the hair-raising uh, spell uh, between launch and to arrival, and indeed just after arrival at the ISS. Um, now, my understanding is that the, uh, as you say, the proton worked fine, and uh, the um, uh, propulsion on board the NUCA itself caused some problems initially. And then after do it docked with the ISS, the um, some of its uh, attitude control system rockets fired unexpectedly, unintentionally, which uh, Caused the um, ISS to rotate by about a turn of 360 plus another 180. And it was corrected within about an hour in terms of uh, rotating it back 180 degrees into its uh, required position. But there's been a lot of uh, talk um, on, on, on uh, the uh, uh, online about what went wrong and how serious what, what happened was. What's your take? How significant was this, um, let's call it short-term malfunction? 
there were two malfunctions on the No Commission. The first was once it got into orbit, it transpired that the main engine fuel tanks were overpressurized and possibly contaminated with gas. They wouldn't fire. So they had to use the maneuvering engines, first of all, to raise the perigee, the low point of the orbit of Nauka. Otherwise, it would fall back to Earth within a few days. So the early days of the Nauka mission in orbit were uh, quite difficult. We don't know yet what was the problem with the fuel tanks. We know that there was a history of problems with the fuel tanks uh, going back many years on Nauka, which we thought had been dealt with. Um, and they were successfully able to get Nauka up to the station. Um, the worldwide awareness of what happened subsequently is probably higher um, because um, this involved everyone else on the station as well, including obviously the American crew. Um, what happened was not as dangerous or as life-threatening as the crisis on Mir in 1997, when, first of all, there was a fire, but second, more seriously, the Progress Freighter hit the Spectre module, which depressurized, and that was a real moment of, of danger. Indeed, the British astronaut on board, Michael Fole, was turned to get into a return cabin and prepare to return to Earth, uh, while his Russian colleagues tried to fix the problem, which they eventually did. Uh, successfully, but that was a real danger to life situation. I don't mm. sense that this was the case here. Uh, what happened this time wasn't very pretty. It was certainly unexpected. We again don't know why the Nauka engines um, turned on unexpectedly. The software, it appears, thought that it was not yet docked uh, with the International Space Station and commanded it accordingly. It did undoubtedly put strain on the docking apparatuses on board. But these are very robust bits of machinery. They're, they're pretty mm -hmm. tough. Uh, and uh, there's no reason to believe that they came anywhere near uh, to um, a, a critical point there. At the same time, the critics do have a point. This is the kind of problem that does need to be sorted out and dealt with. If you're going to build a space station, there will be problems. There will be difficulties. Mm -hmm. um, this is what the ISS and the stations that went before it are there to resolve. The Chinese will experience problems with their space station too, although they may not have done so yet. Um, <clears throat> Nauka itself had a very difficult history, um, but it was subjected to quite intense quality control. The quality control on the Russian side of the space program, which was not good, for many, many years has improved enormously. And the last Russian rocket launching failure was now some time ago. Uh, so this was, I think, an exceptional and an unfortunate event to which we do need um, clarity as to what can be done, how should it be done. But the way seems to be now clear for the successful mm -hmm. operation of Nauka uh, for the next three to four years, possibly the next seven years or so. Um, and that should be quite a boost to scientific research in low Earth orbit. The ISS is, you know, the epitome of international collaboration. When you have a, an obvious um, failure in a particularly clearly identified, in this case, Russian um, seg segment, um, things like this can cause friction between the partners. And of course, given the current um, political politics here on Earth between America and Russia, it can be a bit testy, uh, to say the least. Uh, do you think this uh, particular incident um, can 
question will undermine collaborate the quality of collaboration going forward on the ISS? I think when there are problems like this, the teams do have to work together um, to resolve them. Um, one of the things that did strike me about what happened uh, with the Nauka issue was that the um, Russian information sources certainly kept uh, the worldwide audience uh, fairly up to date on what was happening all the time. Um, and that was not something that had happened in the same way during the Mir event in the late 1990s. But then we didn't have the internet, Twitter, and so on in the late 1990s. So some of the communications re revolution has made the circulation of information much, much better now. Um, I think the problem about what has happened with Nauka takes place against a much more difficult political background uh, between the United States and Europe on the one hand and Russia on the other. Uh, and that is a real problem for cooperation between Europe and Russia. And indeed, I've heard people who have said to me, the ExoMars project would not happen now uh, because the political conditions between Europe and Russia have deteriorated to the point uh, where there would not be political approval at the highest level in Europe uh, to put that together. And although there are uh, planned areas of cooperation between Russia and Europe over the next number of years, Luna 27 is probably the best example, uh, but there are others. Mm -hmm. um, the, they, are, uh, in, they are individual instruments. They are projects for cooperation, but they're not programs for cooperation. And I think that, that is the difference. Um, so the, the political... Uh, background which has deteriorated quite radically since 2014 is presenting a lot of problems between the space agencies and is not, I think, helping the atmosphere. If you believe that space cooperation is one of the things that should be kept going, despite whatever um, political problems may exist between the between countries or groups of countries, then this is not. Um, then the situation is quite difficult. But I think there are, well, we know there are people who would prefer that there weren't cooperation at all. Um, and here we're into a, a highly contested political field about whether when there is difference between countries on political issues, it is better to cooperate or not to cooperate. Um, so obviously, having looked at the cooperation side, one tends to be disposed to considering that it's a good thing, that it reduces international uh, tension that it leads to better understanding between both sides, that it presents great economies um, of, uh, of, of effort, of time, of money, and so on, because generally the outcomes, although cooperation does cost money, cooperation costs time, it costs effort, it costs a lot of energy, uh, it costs people to putting a lot of um, energy into um, all the processes in, in, involved, the gains, uh, almost certainly outweigh them. Um, and ultimately, it is much more costly to do things separately than to do things together. We are running out of time, but I just want to run this question past you, which uh, uh, you just touched upon. You know, there are costs and benefits of, uh, of cooperation. And you, I think you and I and most people who uh, into space, recognize and realize the, the values and the benefits of co cooperation. Now, this is pushing it a little bit. I wouldn't want you to speculate, but one of the things that um, you highlight in your book was this um, reference to a speech by President Kennedy, 
the strategy for peace in 1963, so the year he was assassinated. At that time, he was thinking about um, bringing uh, Russia into the USSR into uh, even the um, uh, Apollo program, the, the, the mission to the moon, the human spaceflight mission to the moon. Now, of course, that never happened because he was assassinated. To what extent do you think collaboration in space has an influence, a direct influence, in the way that we uh, politics is done here on Earth to the extent that it prevents conflict here on Earth? I think it could. I think one of the um, most intriguing things to arise is if you play the what-if game uh, on <laughs> this. Um, and certainly yeah. there is a counter-narrative to the Cold War, which looks at the ways in which the United States and Europe on one hand and the Soviet Union on the other did engage in cooperative efforts um, and did not have the same level of antagonism uh, toward one another. Um, and that this process during the Cold War is understated. Quite a lot of good things did go on below the surface, but they were not advertised very much. If I could give you an example from the early space race, the two great scientists on either side were James Van Allen on the American side and Sergei Vernov on the other. And they were competitors to try identify the nature and extent and the science of the radiation belts around the Earth. Um, but they met and they went on lecture tours of each other's countries hosted by the other person. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so here you had uh, American scientist uh, James Van Allen touring Russia, uh, Sergei Vernov in the United States. Um, and you had an alternative narrative whereby Kennedy in his, his peace speech of 1963 said things um, about working with other countries, which no American president that I'm aware of has said since. Um, Kennedy, it was, who was proposing a joint mission to the moon. Um, and uh, we know from um, Sergei Khrushchev, the son of Nikita Khrushchev, that uh, Nikita Khrushchev was on the verge of accepting that proposal. So, so it would have been a joint mission between the Soviet Union and the United States. After Kennedy was gone, uh, Lyndon Johnson was not the slightest bit interested in that idea. Um, but there is an alternative history and narrative that one could construct of ways in which the Cold War became less important and less threatening and less dangerous than it did become, particularly during the 1980s. And space cooperation was on the page there somewhere as part of that process and one of the drivers of that process and trying to make that process work a bit better. So I think the answer to, to your question is that space can be, space cooperation can be a force for the diminution of political uh, tensions, uh, can enable understanding between countries that might not otherwise develop, uh, can um, build people into the cooperative process that they might not otherwise be there. It invests them in working with the mm. other side more than working against the other side. So the more people, and for example, Europe has a space industry of 400,000 people. That's a lot. Um, so that if, if significant parts of that are invested in working with present-day Russia, that is a reason for finding common ground and resolving the political differences uh, rather than uh, continuing the standoff. I know there are different political views to that, but certainly the cooperation process and experience would suggest that. Well, it's been a 
fascinating 400 pages. I can't possibly cover all the interesting aspects uh, that I came across. So this uh, book is really, uh, uh, thank you for, for putting it together. There's tons of pictures in there. Uh, I don't know how, how long did it take you to, to put this uh, book together and what is your next piece of work that you're working on? Um, I, I've been I've been um, asked to and will be working on Japan. Um, Japan in 2020 passed 50 years since Japan launched its first satellite in February 1970. At the time, Japan was considered to be the Asian leader in spaceflight, ahead of China mm -hmm. and ahead of India as well. Um, how things have turned out differently in respect of China. Um, but the mm -hmm. Japanese have run a very interesting space program that has kept going over the years with many great achievements, particularly taking mm -hmm. rocks from the asteroids. Uh, they have their own mm -hmm. laboratory module in Earth orbit, the Kibo and so on. So it's a distinctive program that has obtained uh, very special results for Japan. Um, it's a different culture, a different approach, a different view on what should be done. With a country with limited resources to spend in this area, it has to make some sometimes difficult choices about what to do and what not to do. So those are the topics that uh, this book is going to be looking at. Brian Harvey, fascinating conversation, fascinating book, and I look forward to the next one. Thank you very much indeed for your time. You're welcome and thank you.